I mean, a million dollars in the Bay Area can still buy you quite a bit. It's a basically one house too, of course. <laughs> it's like, but they, if you drop a house worth of money into just media buys, you can really irritate the crap out of people. And my district was not ready for that. And that kind of stuff where they're hearing all sorts of lies and manipulations. And, you know, these dark money groups worked overtime in California. Welcome to the Ronin Project podcast, a show about Asian Americans in politics, rocking the boat, breaking the rules and taking on the big fights. I'm your host, Bill Wong. Buckle up. It's time for Ronin's to roll program. Hello, Ronin Nation. Welcome back to the Ronin Project podcast. We're in season two now. Today's special guest is California State Assembly member Alex Lee. Assemblymember Alex Lee represents California's 24th Assembly District, which includes the communities of Fremont, Newark, Sanol, Milpitas, and San Jose. Assemblymember Lee was elected in 2020 and became the youngest Asian American legislator ever elected and the first openly bisexual state legislator in California history. He currently chairs the Assembly Environmental Safety and Toxic Materials Committee. In his first year in office, he was named Legislator of the Year by the Golden State Manufactured Home Owners League, as well as the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice. Previously, he worked for California State Senator Henry Stern and Assemblymember Evan Lowe on statewide policies regarding public safety, climate change, and education. Lee has been a Bay Area resident since birth and has called both San Jose and Milpitas his home for all of his life. He's a graduate of Milpitas High School and the University of California Davis, Go Aggies, where he served as student <laughs> body president. Welcome to the show, Assemblymember Lee. It's great to have you. Thanks, Bill. Thank you for inviting me to the show and doing the uh, entire run of my bio thus far. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great bio. Yes. So let's start off with your journey in politics. Tell us why you chose to run for office, because I know it's not a fun thing to do, and what running campaign was like. The short story of it is that back in 2019, when I was just a legislative staffer in the district office of Evan Lowe, my predecessor decided to not rerun for his seat and it opened a opportunity. Frankly, after my experience in student government, I didn't think that I would ever want to be an elected official ever again. Even in the microcosm of student government, it was a lot to be like the face, to be a representative. But we gave it our all. We ran a very underdog race. Underdog to the point that, you know, myself and my team, we did not think we were going to win. This was back in the primary of March 2020, so right before the pandemic too. And we had a shoestring budget of $32,000, and yet we won. And that's because we knocked on 30,000 doors, talked to every single person we could, you know, pre-pandemic, of course, in person, every small thing we could. And, you know, a lot of it, why I even chose to run at, at that time, I was 23 years old, was a lot of frustration. Frustration, frankly, that, you know, we have really, really terrible crises facing our state and our country. And we have a democratic supermajority that doesn't seem to live up to its promise. The most innate and personal, intimate and most personal problem I felt was the housing crisis. I cannot afford to buy a home in my own hometown. I can barely afford to rent there. So that's why I live at home with my mom. And that's how I save money. And I'm able to do the two residents thing here in Sacramento and back home. But that's the reality. And every day that passes that we don't solve the housing crisis means more and more people who might have to leave the state or go to or, or lose their home, sleep on the streets, really terrible outcomes. And we really are having a state that's split between two, two California, the haves and haves nots. And I channeled that kind of frustration. And we set a campaign that just outright, we said everything we would want to do, everything that we believed in, no holds bar, no holding back. And yet we won. And I think it's because I think we did put in the hard work in the field and we had a genuine progressive message that resonated with our voters. And that's how I got here. Great. And it was a great victory. I mean, it was a crowded field, um, a lot of different candidates, but your reelection was a little bit different too. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and the re-election was interesting because so in my first run, I was outspent 15 to 1. In this race, I was spent again in my re-election. I had only ever spent in the duration of my um, re-election year from 2022, sorry, 2021 to 2022, I only spent about $900,000 total. Uh, I had a million dollars dropped against me in one month by corporate real estate interests. Uh, a lot of heavy hitters that did not like the work I was trying to do to address our housing shortage or, and our housing crisis. Uh, they did not like all the work I was doing to push social housing and to put put in stronger tenant rights. So they dropped a million dollars against me and they propped up a lot of my opponents, including ironically my predecessor who had then stepped aside, but then I ha had to go and beat him as well. So it was very interesting in the sense that we had a lot of money spent against us as well, but this time was an incumbent. Still, the principles stay the same that we went and we knocked on every single door we could. We went to every small thing we did and we let the work speak for itself. And I'm glad that we prevailed in the re-election, even though we were outgunned again. We've been in this business a long time. I've been in this business a long time. Um, what I've started to see with the independent expenditures and some of these dark money packs is really outrageous. Not just the amount of money that they're spending, but the tactics and the messaging. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's... I think in dark money groups and their spending and they make all these ridiculous negative campaigns really reinforce to people why they don't like electioneering and they don't like the campaigns. You can imagine for my district, which is not used to being treated like a battleground, it's not like Ohio or something, where you just pummel, you go on TV and you see a Alex Lee sucks campaign. You go to your mailbox, you say anti-Alex Lee stuff. You go to your web browser, on social media, on everything, on radio, like you hear it all. I mean, a million dollars in the Bay Area can still buy you quite a bit. It's a basically one house too, of course. <laughs> it's like, but they, if you drop a house worth of money into just media buys, you can really irritate the crap out of people. And my district was not ready for that. And that kind of stuff where they're hearing all sorts of lies and manipulations. And, you know, these dark money groups worked overtime in California, this cycle too. It really turns people off. And I think part of the strategy sometimes is to also like just make people so miserable. They don't want to vote in this race. They're like, they don't even know it's true anymore. They don't even know what what's going on. And I think it's disservice to our elections. You know, when we live in an era of fake news and, and extreme polarization, when you have real, you, you have corporate interests and you have all these moneyed interests, just putting money into the factory of misinformation, it doesn't help anything better. Right. I mean, these are just awful tactics that demoralize people. And if people don't want to vote, it's, it's sometimes hard to blame them. I did talk to a lot of people when I was door knocking and they're five out of five voters, you know, they're high propensity voters who vote all the time. And, and I asked them, is like, Oh, you know, are you, you're going to turn in your ballot? Like when are you going to, are you going to vote? And they're like, no, I'm not gonna vote this time. They're like, Oh, and why? It's like, there's so much like misinformation. I don't you understand. You know, these people don't really, really know me. And they're like, I don't, I just don't understand. And I'm not taking a side, but just like, it's too much. And I'm just going to sit this one out. And that's the effect, a chilling effect of democracy. That is really despicable. Yeah, it's intentional. I mean, for mm -hmm. the listeners out there, it is uh, negative campaignings are intentionally designed to suppress voter turnout, particularly voter turnout among voters of color and lower income voters who just have a lot of stuff going on and easy to to mm -hmm. get them to not vote as opposed to uh, more wealthy, higher educated voters who vote conservative because they vote no matter what. Tell us a little bit about how, like, say, labor helped, you know, kind of level the playing field with some of these these uh, dark money attacks on you. Yeah. So I, since the first day I ran for office, I took a pledge of never taking any corporate PAC money, uh, whether that be directly from corporations or there are many, many different groups they set up to funnel money to candidates. I deliberately said I would not do that because I truly believe that our government should be for the people and by the people. It should not be for the highest bidder. 
And labor, of course, is a player in this, right? They represent working class people, different professions and different trades. Um, and there's always, I think, a lot of false equivalency between the two, but I always liken the power of, of organized labor today and organized corporate interests. Like the, if you were to put in a battle, like a US destroyer versus a dinghy, it's like a difference in battle power. They're both ships. Yes, they're both boats, but they have vastly different firepower. So labor was really helpful in the sense that they were able to communicate to members of my district. They came out on walks and they helped me monetarily. Of course, they helped a bunch too. But even though in that 900000 I talked about that I spent for myself, it still did not compare. Even with the IEs that in the end, the independent expenditures that came in to help me later on, I think were still like a third of the amounts against me. And it just goes to show how incredibly outgunned we can be. And just to know all of the money that was spent by myself or to help me from other groups were all just positive messaging. I made a very deliberate choice to not really engage. I mean, there was plenty of opportunity for that kind of stuff, but I didn't want to be punching down or doing any of this dirty stuff. The million dollars was almost exclusively anti-Alex, just exclusively anti-Alex. So labor was really helpful. We're getting folks out. And sometimes it matters a lot, right? To hear from your union, especially for example, to say from your teacher's union, be like, hey, this guy's really great for teachers, for education, for schools, instead of just any random thing. So those member-to-member communications can be really helpful. And I think in a way, that's how we kind of structure our campaigns is what kind of social networks or, or nodes can we kind of harness and talk about rather than just complete blanket mass messaging, which is what IEs do. Right? They don't really care about it. They can buy TV ads, buy all the ads they want, and they don't really care. One benefit of your campaign is you've got a lot of very talented, young AAPI staffers, campaign staffers that are supporting your campaign. I think that's the future. I think my era, in my era, I got a lot of people that just like sitting around giving their opinions. They don't want to walk precincts. They don't want to make donations. Tell us a little bit about you know your infrastructure and how you kind of energize your base of young AAPIs to go out there, you know, do the the organizing and, and, and the campaign work. Yeah, I'm really blessed that my entire campaign team are all young API folks. So I have Chelsea, uh, James, and Allison today. And I even before then we had even more API folks, but very dedicated campaign team. I think I also learned a lot from like say AOC's campaigns and some of the squad campaigns where they don't really they only demobilize is what I say. In the state, it's quite typical that you run a really big campaign operation months until the election, then you power down for the rest of the year, right? For us, and like I think at AOC structure too, we we maintain the campaign infrastructure 24-7. So, you know, in the assembly, we're run every two years. So basically every other year we're in election mode. Uh, in the Senate, they're, you know, four years, so lucky them. But we have to basically maintain that constantly. So I don't ever believe in basically powering down for nine months of the year or something like that. I believe in continually keeping the operation going. And that's in not just in the fundraising aspect, but also their field operation. It takes a different sense, right? When it's GOTV time, when it's get out the vote, you're door knocking, you're calling voters. But in the other meantime, it's how do you form meaningful relationships? How do you help people in the community? And we kind of figure out how to do that year by year, case by case, what's going on, what matters to the community. And we're able to be flexible about that. You know, it's really understanding and utilizing the resources you have to be engaged with people. And uh, I always go with the philosophy of like meeting people where they're at, and especially having some really talented people on my on my campaign who understand different networks, different clubs, different groups, or different ways to message to even cross different different demographics is really helpful. Uh, yes, we all are young API folks, uh, but we also have different networks where we can listen to other people too, and that's really important, right? Because something that matters to me as a young queer Asian person probably might be different from someone who is, you know, retired. So 
who's comfortable, but has different challenges too. So we have to figure out how to do these things. But I think having such a great team has also enabled us to then help go out and recruit people too, because a lot of campaigns rely on like, say, college or high school volunteers to be like the, the army itself, right? But we're able to also maintain our relationships so we can always call upon a regular pool volunteers or go recruit them more easily. I think from the benefit of my age right now, I mean, it won't last forever, but I'm able to connect a lot with the younger people and really get them motivated and do, do the campaigning because that's the hard part. The door knocking is the hardest aspect of it. The speculation, the, the horse racing, all that stuff anyone can do. But we really want to motivate people to you know get out there, learn from themselves because there's nothing more enriching to the campaign experience than getting the input of like 100 voters. And then you basically know what that area thinks already. And it's, it's, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah, it's really exciting to see your team. I, th I think that you've got a lot of people that are really dedicated. There's this certain cynicism in our world about younger AAPIs who are just, you know, there to uh, get their Maserati and their Rolex and, and get a yacht eventually. I think that there is probably a segment of our population that, that is very much like that. But then there isn't. There's, there's some really active young AAPIs out there who are really trying to change the world. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, the funny thing is, you know, so I represent basically the bedroom community of Silicon Valley. And I do have a lot of young people who made a big in tech right now. They make probably five times as much money as me right now. They have really comfortable lives. But at some point, especially when you peak young, people feel like, damn, this is empty. <laughs> this doesn't feel great. And they find their way into civic engagement one way or the other. And my kind of goal is to find those people, welcome with open arms, because you could turn to all sorts of directions where you could become, you know, a not so benevolent tech millionaire and go a different direction. But I think a lot of people genuinely want to figure out how to solve the issues of their home area. And we try to figure out that way that looks for people, right? Some of them begin to organizing, some of them become funders for really great causes. Some of them become literally they use their own excess hours that they have, like they just have more free time. So that's really amazing to be able to do that. But I think the bulk majority of this generation, they want to one, live in a much better world than they have right now, but also pass it down to their kids or their family members. So I think that's the blessing of at least my district is, you know, I think on aggregate, people do fairly well monetarily, you know, the costs itself kind of eat into your income, which I think is also a part that's kind of hard to understand unless you're from a really high cost area. But I think people really want to give back in one way or the other. And I'm really blessed that there are a lot of young people who will give money, who will do these things. And I always say, to every campaign is like anyone can give anything, whether you're giving money, your time or your talent, it's always valuable. And that's how we actually got through our campaigns. And, you know, our campaign staff are of all different talents. Sometimes some people like they, they're poor and they don't have a lot of time, but they're really good at graphic design. They're really good at social media or they're really good at research or something, or they're really good or they really know like a hundred uncles in this, in this church community, like something like everyone brings a skill set and the strength of the team. It's just how do you harness it? Very cool. Let's talk about your legislative package. I mean, you've been there, uh, you know, one full year, you started a new one, like what, what are your priorities? And you know, what, what, what do you want to accomplish in the, the while in the time that you're here in the, the assembly? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I am entering now my third year in the legislature. So my second term, though it feels like a lot longer now. I am very fortunate, thanks to the speaker, to chair the Environmental Safety and Toxic Materials Committee, as well as our Select Committee on Social Housing. So it remains a top priority of mine to make sure that everyone has clean, healthy air and water and land. And especially true in our housing crisis when we're trying to build more infill housing, more in the urban areas. But there are a lot of parts of California that land might be available, but it's also very polluted. It's very dangerous as toxins and stuff. And we're seeing that, of course, in LA right now with Exide battery um, waste that's left over. And we want to make sure that our communities are clean, right? 
Uh, we don't want to rush into building a lot of housing and then everyone like dies of cancer, which would be really bad. But at the second time is I, I really am pushing some really big bills and hard bills again. For the third time in a row, I'm doing my social housing act, which is to create publicly developed and owned housing for all folks. Uh, we actually are very excited that in Seattle, just February, they passed a ballot measure on the ballot to get social housing done. So it's just the first in the nation to do that. And I'm hoping to work alongside a lot of folks to do that. Um, also, funny enough, I just learned that as I work with different legislators from across the nation on social housing, a lot of them tend to be API. So I don't really know what the correlation is there. But a lot of the folks I work with on whether it's building social housing, or taxing billionaires also tend to be API as well. We seem to run in the same young, relatively young API progressive circles. So it's really cool to also see and to build that network across. So I have a lot of hard-hitting bills, mostly in the housing space, some in electoral form, and then I'm going to focus also on cleaning up the environment. But social housing remains number one. Yeah, it seems kind of odd. Like, why don't we do more of it? I mean, have we all just gone to private housing now? And uh, what, what, when, when did all this change? I would say, um, especially during the Reagan era, as everything kind of goes back to the Reagan era, we were really just completely disinvested in public housing in the United States, while the rest of the world maintained their stock of public housing, municipal housing, social housing, whatever you want to call it in that context. Uh, we really just said, let's just give money to the to the private sector. And how we actually still do this to this day is something called LIHTC, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. The low income housing tax credit is the number one vehicle today that the government uses to produce low income housing. That's literally giving a tax credit to actually mostly Wells Fargo and big banks and corporations that can use it. So we are using our own money, the money that could be spent right now on housing people and building housing or maintaining that housing even for the existing people. Just We just go into banks, we trade around and they build some stuff in their portfolios, which is nice. Uh, but we really privatized uh, our role in housing. And this is not the case in most developed countries, especially Asian countries. So we're hoping to actually do more and learn from our Singaporean and Taiwanese counterparts and even Japanese folks too. Like our Japanese counterparts, very heavily reliant on the private sector, but still have a very healthy stock of public housing in their sense. Whereas say like Singapore has like almost all housing is social housing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the irony and what people don't realize is that, you know, basically this is this is the the real form of government welfare is, is that we're mm -hmm. subsidizing billionaires and multinational corporations who are building these types of things and, and profiting off of it. And they, they continue to apply pressure for those types of tax credits and incentives in order for them to, to become wealthy. But it doesn't really provide the type of affordable housing that we need. Uh, in fact, you know, in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. affordable housing is kind of a joke of a term at this point particularly in California, because it's not particularly that affordable. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at this, like from just a micro economic standpoint, if you took your own money and you paid someone to deliver a worse product, it's more expensive. It's not as good. At some point, just as a normal person, you could be like, why don't I just do it myself? Why do I stop contracting? I'm just going to do it myself. You know? And that's the mentality, uh, the attitude we want with social housing is we should just do it ourselves again. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think you'll be able to build the momentum for it? I mean, are, are there like a lot of groups that are, are behind you? Like who's supporting the bill? Yeah, last time we actually got our bill all the way to the Senate and it died in one of the committees, unfortunately. But we have a lot of momentum. We have housing activists, environmentalists, labor last time, and I'm hoping to revigorate and rebuild that coalition, which is looking like the case, I think, still. And we're going to hopefully 
bring it forward. It still has a lot of opposition too. It's the real estate industry. Uh, a lot of folks who don't want to see poor people live near them kind of mentality as well. So there are groups against it, but we have a really strong coalition that we hope to bring it to the forefront. Actually, last time this bill was even a labor fed priority bill uh, when it was in the assembly. So we're hoping to bring it back, push it forward. And I think this even this legislative cycle, there's been a lot of interest in social housing bills or social housing in general. And that is a revolution from two years ago when I got here and no one wanted to touch this term social housing at all. Uh, now we have a select committee, we have the bill, and there's, I think there's a lot of momentum. And I think Seattle also doing it by the ballot shows us a lot. That's fantastic. Um, you mentioned about how many of your AAPI colleagues are also interested in it, this as a policy issue. There are a growing number of AAPI seeking elected office. What advice would you give them? Oh, I have so many small advices to give folks, but I think the number one advice I give to any candidate, especially those who have not run for office before, is to never let someone else's doubt become your doubt. You have a lot of people out there who have a thousand opinions and tell you a thousand different things, but you know, there'll be people say you're too you're too young, you're too this, you're too that, I don't like you because you don't have kids, or blah, 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 you're too old, blah, blah, blah. I think all that's nonsense. You should not listen to any of that stuff. They're, Every person, especially those who are good people who want to run for office, already have enough self-doubt in them. They think that I'm not smart enough at this. I don't have this qualification. That's good doubt to have because that pushes you to grow and to learn and to do more and compensate for it. This stuff that's so superficial, like I don't like your hair color or blah, 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 you know, like the stuff that people will say to you, This it's just ridiculous stuff that people are nitpicky about and they'll say because some people are really mean. Uh, they'll say these things, but they have no real meaning, you know. If you listen to yourself and you know where your strengths are, where weaknesses are, that's the kind of doubt that's healthy. So don't listen to the haters. Listen to what's in your gut and you're going to do well. Great. That's great advice. A lot of times when, when AAPIs like yourself think about your general vicinity or your state, the good thing is, is I've seen you being involved in helping raise money for like Union New in New York and other mm -hmm. places. What are your thoughts about AAPI unity and the growing sustain, growing a sustainable progressive AAPI political ecosystem that can support long-term representation for AAPI voices in the halls of power? It's vital. It's vital because we need to have that kind of infrastructure to support other progressives. And so what you're doing in the Rowan Project is very helpful as well, just even introducing people to each other, because a lot of times, even in the same state, we don't know who who's who, especially as new people come in, right? We have to be part of a network and understand what resources there are. Uh, but it's so, so vital to sustain our movement because... Like I also recognize, you know, I'm only one person part of the movement. If I were gone tomorrow, hopefully the movement would still carry on. We do all the things we want to do. That's the important part. It's not about individuals. It's about the sustained movement where we're all part of it. Um, it's also vital because we know the contrasting side does is well organized. They do have infrastructure. They do have donors. Look, the conservative forces we're against, the, the forces that protect the status quo, are the ones who have money are the ones that are connected, are naturally the ones who want to protect their own, right? So we have to build a network that wants to have change. We can't all go at it one by one, one by one, because they'll swat us all down one, one at a time. But if we're together, we're much stronger. That's great. The Ronan Project recently has compiled a list of progressive AAPI elected, state and federal, mm -hmm. and there's 179 of them. I had no idea. I was, it was just shocking. You know, they're in places like Utah, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing. And I think that if they all got together, I think I think the, the political world would shake. So hopefully hopefully that'll happen sometime soon. I, I know I'd that there's some other organizations. I'd love for that to happen. Yeah, it, you know, it'd be one heck of a party too. I mean, I think these are 
are actually really exciting people. And I, in fact, you know, some of the other states, it, it's 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 funner to watch them because they're in real fights. In California, you kind of win just because you're a Democrat. Um, uh-huh. Hate to say that, it's like, <laughs> you know, but it's true. Is like we've got so many Democratic registered Democratic voters that that it's it's a little bit hard to to lose some of these races. But um, it would be it would be great to see all those Asian Americans assembled in in one place and and being able to kind of express our power. Any last words for encouragement for the Ronin Nation out there? You know, get off your ass, that type of stuff. <laughs> Well, definitely we should go out there and do more. But I think, you know, of especially if you're listening to this and you're a mover and shaker with API, you naturally already are very well vested, very intelligent, and you're already doing a lot with, with what you're doing. If you're able to sync up with people who are even just working on the same subject as you, this that's when you get real stuff nationally interstate done. That's where I was even surprised myself is like, I didn't know at first there are networks that people work on wealth taxes on billionaires or people work on social housing. And once we linked up, we trade notes, we start working together, your your work gets amplified. You have like, say what I did with eight states introducing wealth tax simultaneously. That kind of stuff is so valuable. So sometimes just look beyond uh, your own horizon a little bit, see who's out, who's also out there working on some st- cool stuff and you'll probably make a lot more change faster than you expected. That's great. Assembly Member Lee, thanks so much for being a guest on the Ronin Project Podcast. This is a great episode, great advice. So great to have you on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on and thank you for all you do with the Ronin Nation. Thank you. Well, Ronin Nation, that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening in this week. We'll see you next time. If you are inspired by the exploits of the amazing Asian American badasses on the Ronin Project Podcast and want to find out how you can learn more about politics or help Asian American candidates, click on the link in the show notes to join the Ronin Nation's national progressive movement to inspire organize and empower Asian Americans. Until next time, Ronin's Roll Program.